It's nice to be here as part of the 10-year anniversary, even though I've technically only been here for about one-third of those 10 years. Um, if you have been, haven't been part of the bigger history of Eastgate Bible Church, um, you've certainly seen David and Jan uh, throughout that video, who was the, the first pastor of the church. If you go onto our Facebook page, you'll find the full-length video, which includes a lot of other young faces, including a very young... Oh, no, there was a very brief young face look at Samuel and, and Laura in that video. Uh, but you also you'll see Owen, who was the pastor in between David and myself. And I started here in... Gen- no, not January. March 2016. Something 2016, maybe February, March. It all blends together. So let's open up in prayer as we come to God's word and we give thanks for what he has done and what he is doing in his people. Heavenly Father, it is a joy that we can celebrate 10 years of fellowship as a church. We thank you that your wonderful and powerful gospel, which, which began as a small movement in Jerusalem, has scattered to all of the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you that it is such good news that it is not to be contained. And we thank you that all of us here who know and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, now it's only by your grace, not by our merits or our efforts, that we have entered into this privileged relationship with you. We thank you that it is still a good news and you still have a plan for your people and for your church in this world. And as we look to uh, that, that plan that you laid out to your first 11 disciples, Uh, Lord, that we might capture something of that vision and might shape us individually and as a church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I did say I'm the third pastor here, but I can also give you some more information about me. I'm a bit of a loose cannon. The further you go back in my history, the younger I am, the more that was a true statement to be made. Often I can get really excited, spontaneous about pursuing something with all of my heart, just off a little whim. Don't send me down to the shops with a shopping list because, you know, I may miss some things on the list, but I'll come back with something else. And sometimes in our leadership, it helps that between my spontaneity and Samuel's cautiousness, it kind of flows and works well together. Now, I can get excited about a new adventure, passionately pursue it with all of my heart, but not actually think through a lot of the logic or the things that are required to in this journey that I've endeavoured upon. I remember it was maybe a couple of years ago and I was thinking about Westbrook, a town of 4,500 people, and they had a development plan for another 1,500 homes, thinking they've got one church there which has less than 10 people, which now that church doesn't even exist. And I was thinking, how good would it be to plant a church in Westbrook? I was all passionate about it, I was excited about it. But planning a church is more than just thinking, okay, we'll just do what we're doing here and we'll do it again in the afternoon in another location. I hadn't kind of thought through all these things. It requires availability of people. It requires extra finances to rent a place to hold this service. And if you think just putting on an extra service in a town that had a church service of less than 10 people, if you think you just put on a service that you're going to get more than that, you're kidding yourself. You know, it takes time. You need people who are actively involved in that community. So it was a good ambition. It still is a good ambition. But it was beyond our capacity to actually do something about that. Now, just because something is good 
and you've got a desire to see that happen doesn't mean that it will necessarily happen. I and you, we are all very limited in the things that we can do. But how should we think about Jesus' bold aspirations? And I really even feel uncomfortable about using the word aspirations in the context of Jesus. Like he made some pretty bold ones, didn't he? Sort of claims that if I made them, you'd say, Steve, you are off your rocker. Remember Peter? The one that when Jesus explained to him the central hope of salvation, that he would die on a cross and be raised three days later, and Peter rebuked him, said, may this never happen. The same Peter who later on says, no way would I ever deny you, I would die before I deny you. Then, just as Jesus foretold, went on to deny Jesus, saying, I don't know anything about this guy. I will curse myself if I have any connection with this Jesus. Yet to this very same Peter, Matthew 16, says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Building a church and involving someone like Peter, He couldn't even handle the central hope of what the whole plan of God was about. And this church would grow so powerfully that not even the gates of hell could prevail against it. And you're thinking, these guys? That's a pretty massive claim, isn't it? That my church will be built, nothing will stop it. But nowhere does Jesus say, Peter... You will build my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus himself is doing the building. But his chosen means is through people. Like Peter. Like the other disciples. Like you and I. But imagine if you were someone who's had no background reading the Bible... And as someone often does, they say, start at the New Testament. You, you start at Matthew and after you've had the fun of going through the genealogies, you get to this and you hear that Jesus got this big plan to build a kingdom, to build a church that will go to the ends of the earth that nothing can stand against. And you think, using these disciples that have let you down, done all sorts of stupid things? What's your plan B? This can't work. These guys have failed all along the way. But when we look at Jesus' commission, there isn't a plan B. Now, if I don't have a plan B, you're probably quite right to say that's a bit irresponsible. But Jesus doesn't need a plan B. His plan for the church and for the world cannot be thwarted. As we look through the passage, we'll see that Jesus doesn't need a plan B. We'll see what is our role in that plan that he has and why we should have confidence in that plan. So here's our setting. Jesus had been crucified, just as he said he would. He'd been raised on the third day, and earlier in this chapter, he encounters the women who fall down and worship him. And he says to these women, tell the disciples to go forward to Galilee where I'll meet them. And while Matthew doesn't include all of the other appearances 
or the conversation between the women and the disciples, the disciples in our passage are here in Galilee waiting for Jesus. And much like the women, it says they fell down and they worshipped. But some doubted. Now that expression is uncomfortable for many people. Some doubted. Some who had already seen the resurrected Christ. Now in the passage it's very clear it's speaking about 11, obviously minus Judas Iscariot. Someone will say, well surely it must be someone else. Surely none of the 11 would doubt or hesitate in any sense. But the focus seems to be and specifically mentioned upon these 11. The word can mean doubt. The only other time it's used in the gospel is Matthew. Is back when, when Jesus walks on water and Jesus says to Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But it can also mean to hesitate. We're not given descriptions as to why there was doubt, why there was hesitation. Was it like some of the other resurrection appearances where they didn't recognize him? We see later, the next verse says, and he came to them, was he some distance away? Or was it they were so ingrained with the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, they were thinking, I'm not sure about this whole worship thing. We don't know what the hesitation was. What we do know is from amongst the 11, for some reason, there was some hesitation. Rather than that just being a trivial bit of information, I think that's actually helpful information. That before the Great Commission... Before the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, even amongst 11, there was some degree, whatever it was, of hesitation. Now, as a church, we've been preaching our way through the book of Acts, and we've seen that post the Great Commission, post the coming of the Spirit, there was no hesitation amongst his followers. Because God has a bold plan to grow his kingdom. And there's a reason why he doesn't need a plan B. Jesus came to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Such a familiar verse. You've heard it over and over again. But when you become familiar with things, you can often miss some of the really significant importance and implications for us. He says, All authority in heaven and earth. There is no place anywhere, no situation, no sphere of life whatsoever where Jesus does not have all authority. Why do I say that we can accidentally or mistakenly make the mistake of becoming familiar and overlook this? Because we have lots of things in our lives that we worry about. Things that we worry about as though somehow Jesus doesn't have all authority in those situations. Like if you fell asleep in a couple of minutes and the only thing you heard was that Jesus Christ has all authority in every sphere of life and you took hold of that and that changed the way you lived, that would dramatically change the rest of your life if that was the only thing you remembered from this morning. And because this Jesus has all authority... And all means all. Everywhere, he doesn't need a plan B. If there's absolutely no sphere of life where he does not have all authority, then nothing can hinder any plan that he sets forth. 
That's not only a massive statement about Jesus, to say that he has all authority, a claim that can only be made of someone who is God. But it's got implications for us how we respond to him and his commands. So what is our role? Jesus begins to talk about his plan for the growth of his kingdom, for the growth and the building of the church. It's been met with a variety of interpretations and applications. So having established, I've got all authority everywhere. He says, therefore, in light of this, this is what I'm calling you guys to. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, in my three years, you would have heard lots and lots and lots of references to these verses. But it actually came as a surprise to me to realise that I've never actually preached a sermon on this passage in nine and a half years of ministry. But if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've probably heard lots of sermons on this passage. If it was a missionary organisation preaching on the passage, you might find them focusing on the go to make disciples. If it was an evangelist preaching on the passage, they might emphasise on the making disciples, making followers of Christ of those who are presently not followers of Christ. Or in a baptism setting, you might have them focusing on baptising in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while all of those aspects are there, to make any of those things the central focus of what Jesus is commanding his followers to do is missing the point. The central command in that verse is make disciples of all nations. The baptizing and the teaching them to observe all they command them are like subheadings to the main point. They're describing what it looks like to make disciples. I know a lot of you are massive fans of Eugene Peterson's The Message. I say with a degree of sarcasm. He made his own paraphrase, trying to put things in his own words. I've decided to do my own. I tried to Australianise a little bit and I've put these verses, paraphrase, so rather than call it the message, I think a bit more Australian, a bit more the castle, I've called it the vibe. As you go from day to day, make disciples or learners from all types of people by baptising them into the one name, Father, Son and Spirit, and teaching them to live according to all of my commands. Now, while it is necessary that we go, I mean, it's very hard to to bring people to Christ. It's very hard to mature people in Christ if you do not go to them. And it's surprising how much time and money gets invested into getting people to come when, when the presumption of Jesus is that we go. But it's very clear that's not even the main point of the passage is the going. It literally says, in your going... It's not commanded that you go, it's just presumed that that's what you do. And in your going, as you go, you make disciples of all nations. A disciple just being a learner. You're teaching people to learn about Christ in order that they might be transformed to become like Christ. He's pretty much saying, make it your regular habit in your goings in and out of life, 
that you help take people from where they are to bring them closer to Jesus, to trust him and obey him more closely. Making disciples is a lifestyle. It's an ongoing habit. It's not a once-off event. As though people somehow become a disciple, then they graduate to becoming something else. A disciple is a learner. Someone who doesn't presently know Jesus must learn about Jesus and what he's done in order to turn and trust in him. As a Christian, we are constantly learning and growing. We need to keep learning. We never stop learning until we see him face to face. So our first part in our role is to have a habit of going in and out amongst people, helping them to draw nearer to Jesus. Doing so prayerfully, trusting in the power of the Spirit because God has the authority to do these things, not us. So if making a habit of drawing people to Jesus is the main heading, your two subheadings are baptising and transformational teaching. If there's any reason for the order in which they're placed in, which grammatically there's no reason to put them in any order, it could just be simply that baptism is something you do once or, and usually something you do earlier in your Christian life. Whereas learning to obey all of the things that Jesus commanded is an ongoing life pursuit. Both baptism and teaching are fundamental parts of what it means to be a disciple. Remember when Peter preached at Pentecost and they said, what shall we do with this? Peter responded, repent and be baptised. The Bible knows nothing of an unbaptised Christian and if you are trusting in Jesus and haven't got to that point, it's probably a conversation worthwhile having with one of the leaders. But it isn't to say baptised in general, baptised into the name singular, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. An expression of the triune God of one name, expressed in the Father, Son and Spirit. Hence why I'm not that keen of baptism methods that do like a threefold baptism, Father, Son, Spirit. There is one name, one God, united and expressed in three persons. But even this baptism is part of this disciple-making habit of bringing people closer to Jesus. For the person being baptised, they are reminded of their union with Christ in his death and he's being raised to newness of life. But usually baptisms also happen in the community of of God's family, of of his church, where not only is a person being baptised, but usually the church family are committing to helping that person grow in their faith and understanding. So we make a habit of drawing people nearer to Jesus, to trust him more, obeying him more, which includes baptism, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. We're going to be learners till the day we die or see Jesus face to face. Anyone here going to put the hand up and say they obey everything that Jesus has commanded? Anyone even want to be so bold to say that they know everything, every detail of everything Jesus commanded? But it also highlights something of God's plan for the growth of his kingdom and for the building of his church involves teaching all that he commanded us. Teaching to obey all that he commanded us. You could really easily build a church in numbers by choosing which bits are popular, avoiding the bits that are not popular. 
But you're not doing a person any service in doing that. If your goal is to bring people closer in relationship with Jesus, if you tell them this bit's good, this bit's bad, you're drawing them further away. You're saying this Jesus is not good in all that he does. It's not loving your people. It's not growing them spiritually at all to leave bits out. But I do fear sometimes as an evangelical church, sometimes we can read through this passage and hear, teach them everything I commanded. So the aspiration is to know and understand every minor point. But Jesus didn't say, teach them everything I commanded. He says, teach them to observe, obey, or live by everything I've commanded. As an evangelical church, often we have got known and, and good, well known for desiring to teach all of God's word, teaching it thoroughly, teaching it well. But we need to be careful and wary lest we fall into the trap of thinking that knowing doctrine well equates to growing in spiritual maturity. You could have a PhD in theology. Let's go hypothetically. Pretend you actually knew 100% and accurately all of the content of the Bible, but you only lived and obeyed 10% of it a person who only knew 11% of the content of the Bible, obeyed 100% of it, is far more mature than the former. That is warning not to equate knowing good doctrine as a sign of maturity in and of itself if it is not transforming your life. But another question you could be asking is, all this commission stuff, was that just for 11 guys there and then or is it for us? my answer would be both. It was given to the 11, but it was designed to be passed on. Firstly, because it was both a command to them, and part of that command was to teach those who you are making disciples of to observe all that I have commanded you. And if they're being taught to observe all that he's commanded them, that includes the command he's just given to go and make disciples. He's effectively saying to the 11, what I've been doing with you in my life and ministry amongst you, go and do that with others and encourage them to go and do the same on for others. It's a commission of multiplications. Disciple who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, and so on. And we've got reason to be confident in that plan. The last phrase is both the reason why we have confidence and also a reason why we know that it's an enduring commission for us. It says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If it wasn't enough to hear that, him saying he had all authority in every sphere of life, then he says, Now I'm calling you to this. He doesn't just say, And I pinky promise that I'll be with you to the end of the age. It is fact. I am with you to the end of the age. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ is with you at every moment, whether you feel it or not. He's not just with mature Christians, he's with all. So if you look at the Great Commission, you think, I find that a little bit daunting. I find that that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Don't forget the bracketing things is, I have all authority 
and I am with you. If you think you'd be far more calm having Jesus with you, then stop stressing because he is. And he is the one doing the work in and through his people. Why do I say it's the church's commission? Because he doesn't say to the 11, I will be with you until you die or to the end of the century. I will be with you till the end of the age. This is God's plan for the growth of his kingdom, the growth of his church. He hasn't got a plan B because he has all authority to use ordinary Christians to reach out, to bring meet people where they are and bring them nearer in trusting Jesus. So what? There isn't a plan B. Now there's a certain degree of relief in that, knowing that we don't need to come up with some new scheme or strategy. This is Jesus' plan for the growth of the church from that moment on to the day that he returns. Ordinary Christians in there going in and out in life, meeting with people, helping people come nearer to Jesus whether they already know him or not. If they don't know him, helping to come closer, a step closer to knowing him. If they do know him, helping to trust him more in every aspect of life. And it's because of this mission the gospel's gone to the ends of the world. The gospel's come to Australia because this mission, this church exists today. There's no plan B. Jesus isn't holding a 2019 review summit where he decides if there's a better strategy up for grabs. You're not going to find a better one. This is God's plan, the one who has all authority. It's the mission reflected in the mission statement of the church to know the word, live the word, proclaim the word for the glory of the name. It's the mission that's, that's been our drive for the last 10 years. It'll be, the mission will be for the next 10 years until the day that Jesus returns. But it challenges individually too. How are we going in observing this? If this is not just the mission for 11 people, if this is not just the mission of a church organisation or a leadership of the church, if the one with all authority says to you and me, in your going in and out, from all sorts of people, make and mature disciples, baptising them and helping them to live according to his commands. But it challenges us as a church as well. Are we being faithful to the call? Are we being faithful to the mission that Jesus laid out for us? We've seen that making disciples is all about drawing people nearer to Jesus. People who don't know him, helping to see and move a step closer to trusting in him. To people who do know him, helping them to trust him, to grow in him, to depend upon the wonderful blessings that are ours in the gospel. If you've been here for any length of time, you would have seen an announcement about a Vine Project meeting. It's a meeting of our elders and some of our ministry leaders team where we are, over a period of 18 months, we are thinking about what does it mean to make disciples? What what does it mean to to live as a disciple-making church? What does it mean to connect with people at every stage in life, from the person who is far from God to the person who's got a mild curiosity 
to the person who's wanting to trust in Jesus, the person who has just come to trust in Jesus, the person who's growing, the person who's involved in ministry? How do we connect with each of those stages and how are we intentionally connecting with them and showing them what is the next step to bring them closer in their walk with Jesus? And I'm not talking about isolated individual ministries not connected, but how do we have a pathway from wherever they are that people may grow in their walk with Jesus Christ? I really look forward to the 20-year celebration where we can have more stories of new life. People have come to trust Jesus for the first time. Stories of growth and transformation. As Christians' disciples multiply other disciple-making disciples, that's how Jesus has and continues to grow his church. Remember when Jesus was talking about his kingdom? He says, it's like a mustard seed that grows into this big thing. Or it's like leaven that goes throughout the whole bread. It's about multiplication. His kingdom is continually growing. So pray for us as a church. Pray for us as a leadership as we think about how we are faithful to that mission which Jesus entrusted to us. But as we close individually, I want you to just have a moment in prayer where you are right now to think about someone that God has placed on your heart, someone that you know quite well. Think about where they are at the moment, whether they don't know Jesus yet or they do know Jesus. And pray with God, not just today, but into the future. God, how do you want to use me to bring next steps for that person to bring them closer in their relationship with you? So we'll have a time close for you to pray quietly where you are, and then I'll close it off. Lord, we confess that we know the truth that you have all authority in heaven and earth. We know the truth that you are indeed with us. But Lord, sometimes we fail to make that a tangible reality in the way in which we view the world, in the way in which we view the the commands that you have laid before us. Lord, we thank you that you do have all authority, that you do have a plan and that you can use ordinary, everyday people because it's not about our authority or our plan or our ability to change or transform a person. Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully through us, that you would guide us by your spirit to those whom you would be at work within already and that we would be able to give thanks to you as you work through us weak, insignificant, by many ways, people, for your good and glorious purposes. We thank you for what you have done in that in the last 10 years amongst our people and what you will do. May your church become even more of the glorious picture that you intended for it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.